You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. So glad to be here with you today. I'm really excited to uh, be here with you studying God's Word and, and worshiping Him. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews found in your New Testament towards the back. For those of you who like to read the Bible on your phones, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app simply because if you go into the menu there and go into events, you can find all of our notes, stuff that's on the screen and actually more in there so you can interact, you can share stuff. It's just a great way to really engage with the sermon. So it's the YouVersion Bible app and go into the menu and then events and then click on Whitefields Community Church. This morning, as Pastor Jeff mentioned to you, we are beginning a new series, one that I'm really excited about. The series is called An Anchor for the Soul. And if you think about what an anchor does, an anchor keeps a ship from drifting off. Without an anchor, a boat is kind of just at the mercy of the wind and of the waves, and any way the wind blows, wherever the storm takes them, that's where they will go. And, and many people, really, that's how they live their life, isn't it? They're just kind of at the mercy of whatever happens to them, whatever emotions or thoughts they might have. It, whatever happens to them, their circumstances determines their faith and the well-being of their soul. And it's constantly changing based on whatever's going on in their life. But here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us it doesn't have to be that way. It can be different. The, letters to, the letter to the Hebrews tells us there is a hope, which if you have it, it is an anchor for your soul. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you from drifting. And that hope is Jesus. That hope is found in Jesus. In fact, that hope is Jesus himself. It is who he is. It is what he has done for you and all that that means for you. In this series, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. You know, the book of Hebrews is maybe one of the very best places in the entire Bible we can come to to find out who Jesus is and what he has done in all of its rich fullness. And so I'm really looking forward to this study. In particular, one of the things I love about this book is that maybe better than any other book in the Bible, it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it shows us how all of it culminates in and really speaks of Jesus. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name and to get to express praise and honor and worship to you. Lord, we ask now that as we as we study your word, Lord, this would also be an act of worship, that, Lord, as we give attention to your voice, as we give attention to what you have spoken and, and what you are telling us, Lord, that we would do this as an act of honor and worship to you as well. And, Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you'd speak to specific things in our lives. And, Lord, give us ears to hear. Most of all, Lord, we ask that truly we would see you high and lifted up in all of your splendor and beauty and glory. And Lord, that as you do that, that you would draw us 
even in a greater way to yourself. Lord, you yourself said, if I am lifted up, I will draw many to myself. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would be lifted up in our midst and that you would draw us to yourself. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever asked the question or or you've at least heard somebody else ask the question? If God loves me so much, then why is my life so hard? If God loves me and God is so committed to my joy and happiness, if he cares about me, then why is my life so hard? The letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of people who were asking that very question. I think it's a very common question. I think those people aren't all that much different than we are because a lot of people today, many of us, we ask that same question, don't we? See, these were people who had become Christians, but after they became Christians, their lives actually got harder not easier. Their lives got harder, not easier. And that is not at all what they expected. That's the exact opposite of what they had expected what would happen. Their expectation, like many people today, is, okay, you know, if I do what God wants me to do and I live the way that God wants me to live, then the big guy upstairs is going to have my back, right? And he's going to help me. And things in my life, like if you think about a graph, everything in my life will constantly be moving up and to the right, Things will be getting better. There will be progress. There will be success. Everything, you know, my health, my family, my career, I'll just be blessed. And everything will always be moving up and to the right. And that's a great expectation, except when it doesn't work out that way. Like, for example, here are these people in this book, these people that this letter was written to. That is not what happened for them. For them, becoming Christians... On the one hand, it didn't solve all the problems in their lives, but on the other hand, it actually created some new problems that they didn't have before. For them, their commitment to Christianity was actually leading to marginalization and even hostility from other people. And many of them began to look at this and say, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it for me to do this if this is what is happening as a result? You know, I mean, my life was actually a lot easier before I became a Christian So what's the point? Maybe I should just go back to that. Maybe I should just go back to the way it was before. You know, every election cycle, you get these politicians and and you always get somebody who asks the question, ask yourself, is your life better now than it was four years ago? Which is a very, you know, subjective question. Obviously, for some people, it's going to be yes and for some people, it's going to be no. But they say that always, you know, think about your life. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Now, these Christians were asking that same question. Is my life better off now than it was before I became a Christian? And for some of them, they were thinking, not really. I mean, in fact, if anything, I have more problems now than I did before I was a Christian. So maybe I should just give up on this whole Christianity thing altogether. I mean, if my life isn't any better than it was before I was a Christian, then what's the point? I think most of us live in a very different situation today than those people lived back then. But at the same time, I don't think it's really all that different when you look at it like this. Because there are a lot of us who, just like them, are asking this exact same question. If God loves me, if God cares about me, then why is my life so hard? Why, why aren't things easier? I'm doing, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then why aren't things easier? You know, I've talked to a lot of people who've said, I tried out Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Now think about what they're, what they're really saying by saying that. They're saying, I tried it out, but it didn't work for me. That's essentially what these people were saying uh, to whom this letter was written. I tried Christianity out, but it didn't work for me. So I give up. Maybe I'll try something else, or maybe I'll just go with the flow and do what's, you know, maybe more acceptable culturally, and I'll just say that I'm non-religious. I think that most of us can relate to what these people were feeling, what they were thinking, what they were going through. 
These were discouraged people who were seriously thinking about giving up. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever thought about giving up? If you have, you can relate to these people. And the writer of this book, the writer of this letter, he writes to these people, and he writes to those of us maybe who are struggling with discouragement, and he says, hang on, just stop for a second. I need to talk to you about something. I need to tell you this. If you give up on Jesus, you will be making a massive mistake that you will regret, not only for the rest of your life, but for the rest of eternity. Don't do it. Because listen, to turn your back on Jesus because you're experiencing difficulty and hardship in your life, that's the opposite of what you should do. That's the exact biggest mistake that you could ever possibly make. It's something that you will end up regretting for all of eternity. You know, if you're considering giving up on Jesus because of the difficulties that you're experiencing in life, then clearly you don't understand. You don't understand who he is. You don't understand why he came. You don't understand what he's done for you if you would give up on it because of difficulty in your life. You see, if you did understand, if you really did understand who he is, why he came, what he's done for you, then you would be running towards him in time of difficulty rather than turning your back on him. And the difficulties of this life would cause you not to give up on him, but to cling to him all the more. So what you need to do is you need more than anything, you need to see Jesus. That's what the author's saying. More than anything else, here's what you need. You need to see Jesus. You need to set your eyes on him and see him for who he is. And see the gospel in all of its fullness. See what he's done for you. See what that means for you. Because when you see that, it changes everything. It changes the way you view everything, the way you view yourself. It changes the way you view your life and your circumstances. It changes the way that you see other people, even difficulties and hardship. It is only in Jesus that there is a hope which is an anchor for your soul, that no matter what storms come your way, no matter what life throws at you, you might have your ups and downs, but you're not going to be dashed to pieces because you're grounded in him. And you have a hope in him that is bigger than life itself. You know, this letter is what we would call in our day, you know, we write a lot of open letters on the internet and, and things like that in newspapers. We write an open letter. It's just kind of a public letter for anybody to read. And what this letter is, it's really an open letter to uh, people who are considering giving up on Christianity. This is an open letter to people who are discouraged and considering giving up on Christianity. And the author is saying, hang on, take a minute. Before you do anything, let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me walk you through this. Let me walk you through who he is. Let me walk you through what he did and why it's significant and why it matters for you. And so because that's who this letter's written to and that's the reason why it's written, the structure of this letter is cyclical. What I mean by cyclical is this. The writer follows a pattern throughout this letter which is kind of different than any other book of the Bible, at least in the New Testament. This cyclical pattern he follows is this. He says, okay, he tells you something about Jesus. He says, here's Jesus. Look at him. Here's something that's true about Jesus. And then he says, therefore, do not neglect such a great salvation. And then he tells you something else about Jesus. Then he says, now listen, because of that, make sure that you don't harden your heart towards God. And there's this cycle all over again, telling you something about Jesus and then calling you to respond to it and not to turn away from him, but to give him your heart and your life. Throughout the book, the author is essentially building a case, one 
precept upon another where he's saying, look at Jesus and realize not only is he wonderful, not only is he glorious, not only is he beautiful, but also, don't miss this, he is our only hope. He is our only hope. Apart from him, there is no salvation. In him, there is salvation and life, rest and hope, relationship with God, but apart from him, there is no hope and there is no salvation. So don't miss him. Don't neglect him. Now think about this. Imagine with me uh, that you're on an airplane. Okay, you're on an airplane and the flight attendant comes through and says, hey, who wants to wear a parachute? Because parachutes, uh, they're free. We're just handing them out. You don't have to pay anything. This is a free gift from us to you. Here's a parachute. And you think to yourself, well, hey, it's free. I like free stuff. And I'm an open-minded person. I've never tried on a parachute before. So I'll give it a shot. And you know, the flight attendant says, yeah, it's awesome. It feels like somebody's just giving you a big hug all the time. You think, well, I like hugs and I like new stuff. So I like free stuff, and so I'm going to try it on. And so you put on this parachute, and you're sitting there in your chair wearing that parachute. But here's the thing. As soon as that parachute begins to make you feel uncomfortable, kind of sweaty, you begin to stink a little bit, other people are looking at you, they think you look silly, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to take it off because you're going to think to yourself, hey, what's the point of doing something? What's the point of wearing something that makes me feel uncomfortable? What's the point in that? Now, on the other hand, imagine if the flight attendant comes down the aisle and, and tells you, hey, this plane's going down. We don't know how much time we got left, but the plane's going down, and the only way that any of us can possibly survive is if you're wearing a parachute. Well, then suddenly the way that you feel about that parachute is different than the way you felt about the parachute beforehand. Rather than being worried about being comfortable, rather than worried about comfort or fashion or, or other people's opinions, suddenly now you're clinging to that parachute with an overwhelming gratefulness that you've been given it. You see, in the same way, there are a lot of people who think this way about God, right? So many people view God as useful to them. So many people view God, when they look at God, they think, that God, they think of God as God is useful to me. He can help me out. He can make my life better. He can give me the things that I want. He can answer some prayers. He can help me achieve the goals that I have for my life. And then, you know, they'll do things for God with the expectation that if I do these things, then he will do other things in return. And they come in with a lot of expectations and a lot of hopes for how things are going to be. But here's what happens. If and when things don't happen according to your hopes your expectations, then there begins to be this thought, like the people to whom this letter was written, where you begin to think, well, you know what? If God is not being useful to me, well, then why bother? Why should I bother? If he's not being useful to me, then why do I even need him at all? But the author of this letter, I want you to see this, his goal is that we would no longer view Jesus, that we no longer view Jesus as useful to us, but that we would begin to see him as beautiful to us. That we wouldn't see him as useful, but that we would see him as beautiful. That we wouldn't worship him because we think he's useful, but we'd worship him because we see him as beautiful. That we would see him for all his worth, and that we would realize that the salvation that God offers us in him is so precious that it is worth any cost to embrace it and to follow him with our whole hearts. And so here's what we need to do. We need to fix our eyes upon him. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. That's what this whole book is about. It's about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And it begins with these words. 
Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. The title of today's message is The Last Word. And there are three things that this section brings to our attention. First of all, the big message here in the beginning is that God speaks. God speaks. Secondly, we're going to see who Jesus is. And thirdly, we're going to talk about what to do now that we know these things. So let's talk about this. God speaks. Unlike most of the letters in the New Testament, Hebrews is unique because we're not told who the writer is, who, who wrote the, the letter. You know, the custom of that time was that if you wrote a letter, you would begin with your own name and then you would talk about who you're writing to. So that's how you would start the letter. And that's why most of the New Testament letters begin that way. You have letters that say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the believers throughout the world. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Christians of the diaspora. But this letter begins differently. Rather than beginning with the name of the person who wrote these words down, this letter begins by saying, God. The name of God, God, at different times, spoke in different ways, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. This is a God who speaks. You know, I believe that the reason why the writer of this letter did not tell us who they were, did not, you know, identify themselves, is because I think it's sometimes knowing who wrote a message can distract us from actually receiving that message, depending on whether or not we like that person or how we feel about you know, them or who they're affiliated with. You know, earlier this year, uh, a, I had someone, a friend of mine, recommend a book to me. So I picked up this book. I had it on Kindle, so I wasn't really looking at the cover of the book. And I was just reading the book, and I, and I got about almost to the end. Like, I was like 80% done with this book. And then I noticed who the author was. I hadn't actually paid attention to who the author was up until that point. And as I looked at who the author was, I thought to myself, oh no, I've been reading a book by that guy? I don't read books by that guy. I would never read a book by that guy. And yet I had just read a book by that guy. And I'll tell you what, I learned a lot from that book. It was a really, really good book. But see, here's the thing. If I had known beforehand who wrote that book, who the author was, I probably wouldn't have read it. And if I had read it, I would have read it with a very critical and cynical eye. But because I didn't know who read it, I was much more open the things that the person was saying. Now, I believe that the letter to the Hebrews is, is similar to that. The author, I believe, purposefully didn't give his name so that people who would read this letter would consider its content without being distracted or biased by who wrote it. There's been a lot of speculation over the last almost 2,000 years as to who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria attributed this letter to the Apostle Paul because Paul the Apostle, we know that he cared a lot about the Jewish people and that he was uh, very eloquent and he was very familiar with the Old Testament. So that would all add up to making it seem like it was Paul. Tertullian, another church father a little bit later on, he believed that this letter was written by Barnabas, who's somebody we read about in the book of Acts, being one of the early Christian leaders. The reformers, John Calvin and, and Martin Luther, they suggested that this book might have been written by Apollos, who is another person we read about in the book of Acts. And it tells us about Apollos, that he was someone who was good with words and that he knew the Old Testament very well. There's only really one thing that we do know about the writer of this book, and that is that the writer is 
a man, it's a male, because in chapter 13, he refers to himself using a male personal pronoun. So that's the one thing we do know about the writer for sure. But whoever wrote it, one thing is, is for, for certain. They did not want the attention to be on them. They wanted the attention to be on God. And so this letter begins not with who wrote it, but with God who speaks. The author also, you'll notice, doesn't try to convince us here at the beginning of the letter that God exists. He just assumes that we believe that God exists. It's taken as a given. Of course God exists. The question is not, does God exist? The question is, who is this God? What is he like? What does he require of us? How can he be known? You know, we could talk about a lot of proofs for uh, the fact that God exists. You know, there are a lot of things that we could point to, books and things like this, you know, 20 reasons for the existence of God. But we're not going to get into that because the author doesn't deal with it. But I will tell you this. Interestingly, uh, there are actually very few people in the world who are truly atheists. Like if you actually look at the statistics about atheism, you'll find that true atheism is shockingly uncommon, right? There are very, very few people. So I looked up some statistics. Here in the United States, 3% of the population does not believe in God at all. They are true atheists, 3% of the population. Now, there are many more people in our society who would describe themselves as having no religion or being agnostic. That number is around 23 to 25%. So that's much higher. But the point is, the word agnostic means without knowledge. It literally kind of means ignorant. And so a person who is agnostic, what they believe is that there probably is a God, there probably is a higher power, but they're on the fence about what they believe about God, and instead of choosing something, they choose to choose nothing. But the point is this, they still believe that there is a God or a higher power. And the fact is that the great majority of people in the world and in our own society, even if they're non-religious, 97% of people believe that God exists. And so I think it's a fair assumption to say, okay, the question isn't does God exist? The question is, what can be known about who this God is? How can he be known? And the author of this letter tells us this. He says, the way that you can know who God is is because God has spoken. God has spoken in various ways at different times throughout history. Now the question is, what has God spoken about? God has spoken in order to reveal himself to us, in order to, re to reveal to us who he is and what he is like and what he desires from us. Furthermore, he has spoken to tell us who we are and why he created us and what he requires of us. You know, the Bible tells the story of God's revelation of himself, his self-revelation to humankind throughout history. And at times, as, as we read here, as we read throughout the Bible, we read about times when God appeared to people in different ways. Sometimes it was through messengers. Next week we're going to talk about angels. What are angels and, and what's the deal with angels? You know, the word angel in Greek, angelos, literally means messenger. That's all it means. In Greek, angel Angelos means messenger. We're going to talk about that more next week. So God at times spoke through messengers. At other times, God revealed himself in other ways. We know that to Moses, God appeared in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. To the people of Israel, he appeared in a cloud of fire. To Job, God appeared in a whirlwind, a tempest, a, a storm, kind of like a tornado. To Elijah, God spoke in a still, small voice. To Isaiah and to other people, 
God spoke to them through heavenly visions. But now the author tells us that God has spoken in another way, in a final way, in an ultimate way. He has spoken to us through Jesus. If you go down to verse 3, it tells us what he has spoken to us through Jesus. It says, the Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of his character. God is speaking to us through Jesus, not just to give us information in general, but to tell us who he is. He is communicating himself. He is giving us himself. He is a personal God who speaks to us because he wants a relationship with you. But notice this. Not only has God spoken to us through Jesus, but it is through Jesus that God has spoken most clearly, that he has spoken most fully. Jesus is God's last word, God's final word. Jesus is, the author is telling us, God's ultimate revelation of himself to us, the ultimate communication of who he is so that we can know him and have a relationship with him. Now notice the contrasts here in this text. It says, in the past, God spoke in various ways, but now God is speaking in one way through his son, through Jesus. And then the writer gives another contrast. He's so bold, so outrageous to say this. In the past, God spoke at many different times in different ways, but now in these last days, God is speaking to us in one way through his son. These last days, do you know what that means? It means essentially this. These last days means from the time when the author wrote it all the way until the end of time, until the end of all time, the author is saying, from now until the end of eternity, there is no fuller, there is no more final expression of who God is than Jesus. That's an incredible claim. It means that if you want to know God, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God, then what you need to do is to look at Jesus. Come to Jesus. See him. Put your eyes on him. God revealed himself in the past in different ways, but now God has given us his last word, his final word, the ultimate revelation of who he is so that you can know him, and that is Jesus. If you want to know God, then you need to come to Jesus. It isn't so much that Jesus brought us a message about God, it's that Jesus himself is God's message about himself. It's God's revelation. He is God's revelation of himself. The text tells us he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That means that in Jesus we see God's personality walking around on two legs. We see God's nature, God's character on display. And there's something very wonderful about this, right? It's, it's saying there's a God who wants to communicate with you. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. But on the other hand, there's also something about this that could be hard for some people to accept. Because there's a finality to this. There's no vagueness about it. It's saying this is the way it is. Jesus is God's message. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Period. Full stop. That's how it is. If you want to know God, there's one way. And it's Jesus. God has spoken. What we have here in the Bible is God's revelation of himself through messengers, through prophets, and finally, in Jesus. Now some people have a hard time with the finality of that. Because they might say, well, you know, there are a lot of people in this world who believe a lot of different things, and who am I or who is anybody to say that what they believe is the one and only right way to believe and to think? And yet, that is what this is saying. 
As I mentioned earlier, there are very few true atheists in the world today, but there are a lot of people who call themselves agnostic or unaffiliated. And these are people who are essentially on the fence. These are people who are saying, you know, there are a lot of different things out there, and, it's, and I'm not sure I know the answer. I'm not sure I know enough to know the answer. There are a lot of people who believe a lot of things, and to say that one thing is true is really hard, and it's very much frowned upon in our society because to say that one thing is true implies that other things are not true, that there are other beliefs out there and claims about God that are not right and not correct. And there's such a huge pressure in our society to not be dogmatic about what you believe. But the problem is, Christianity won't let you get away with that. Christianity will not, the Bible will not let you get away with that. I'll say that again, you know, there's this pressure in our society to not be dogmatic about what you believe. But here's the, the problem. Christianity will not let you get away with that. Jesus himself will not let you get away with that. Even look at Jesus' own claims. He won't let you get away with being vague and not being dogmatic. He's, he makes you get off the fence and choose. And that's what the author is going to get to finally at the end here. You can't stay on the fence about Jesus. The Bible doesn't let you get away with not being dogmatic. Jesus himself doesn't let you get away with it. Jesus made some incredible claims, some incredibly exclusive claims that make our modern sensibilities kind of, whoa, that's, that's pretty exclusive, right? He says things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get more exclusive than that. And so here's the other problem. If being a Christian, and I think we can all agree on this, if being a Christian means following Jesus and doing what he taught, well, then you can't ignore those kind of statements, even if they go against your modern sensibilities. If you want to be faithful to actually be a Christian, that means you have to actually listen to what Jesus says and, and either accept it or not. So if you accept it, you, you got to understand, he's making these claims of exclusivity. And so you can't get away from it. The Bible won't let you get away with not being dogmatic. And, and then you have places like here in Hebrews, right, where the whole point of the letter is that you cannot put Jesus on the same shelf with other religious leaders or other religious gurus or great historical figures. He won't stay there. You can't put him in the same category as other religious figures throughout history. He is in a completely different category all to his, his self, all to himself. He's in a category all by himself. There's no one like him. There's no one who compares to him. There's no one who's on par with him. He is altogether different. Either he is who he said he is or he is not. But if he is who he says he is, if he really did what the Bible claims he did, then that sets him apart from every other person, every other figure who has ever lived. And it demands our life and our all. You know, what's interesting is that the people who this letter was written to, they were facing a pressure to not be dogmatic about Jesus too, just like we are today. And the temptation was for them to say, hey, Jesus is a good teacher, like he said some good things, and, and we appreciate those things, you know, but we don't want to be dogmatic about him, and we don't want to go so far as to say that he's the only way to salvation. And the writer of this book is saying, no, you can't do that. You can't go there. You can't do that with Jesus. Take a look at who he is, and you'll see why. So let's look at who Jesus is. This brings us to our second point. From the second half of verse 2 through the end of verse 3 and kind of into verse 4, the writer tells us about who Jesus is. And there are seven distinct things that the writer tells us about Jesus' identity. We're going to move through them pretty quickly. First of all, he is the heir 
of all things, the heir of all things, particularly in the ancient mind, this concept of an heir spoke of rank. It spoke of preeminence. So to be the heir of all things means that you are of the highest position. There is none above you. There is none equal to you. There is none on equal footing with you. It means that Jesus is above all. Everything, it also means that everything ultimately belongs to him. Everything in this world, even your very life, it is his at the end of the day. And the reason for that is the next point. Number two, because he created the world. He created the world. The Bible tells us that God created the world, but over and over it tells us that Jesus created the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth and under the earth, things visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. So if God created everything and Jesus created everything, what it's trying to tell us, what it is telling us, is that Jesus is God. In the same way that the Father is God, Jesus is God. He is beginningless. He is the creator. He is not less than God. He is not inferior to God. He is God. All things were created by him and all things were created for him. Do you realize that? Do you realize that even you, you were created for him. If that's true, it means that you were made for a purpose. And that purpose is bigger than just you living for yourself, for your own comfort and pleasure. You realize that if you were made for him, then it is only if you are living for him that you will experience joy and fulfillment because that's what you were created for. Thirdly, he is the radiance of the glory of God. If you really understand what this is saying, if, if you really get this, it's actually quite astonishing. Radiance, what is radiance? It's the beam of light that comes forth from a source of light. In other words, Jesus is the beam of God's glory. For example, a, a few weeks ago, we all put on special plastic glasses and we looked at the sun. But see, none of us actually, even when you were wearing those glasses, you weren't actually seeing the sun itself. You know that? You, what you were seeing was you were seeing the rays of light which are coming off of the sun. You were seeing the sun's radiance. That's the same word that's used about Jesus. The light which is emanating off what you actually see. In the same way, the Bible tells us no one has ever seen God. But in Jesus, we have seen the radiance of God's glory. He is the beam of light that has come from God to us for us to gaze upon. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this recurring picture of the glory of God that is displayed in a cloud. As Moses begins to lead the children out of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, something appears. It's a cloud. It's a fiery cloud in the form of a pillar at night. It's clearly fiery. During the day, it looks like a cloud in the sky. And it's so awesome and it's so powerful, this cloud of God's glory, that at one point the Egyptian army is chasing the children of Israel and this cloud shows up and it stops the entire army. They can't move past it. Later on, it leads the children of Israel through the wilderness and it finally settles on top of Mount Sinai and there's thunder and there's lightning and no one can even approach the mountain lest they die. And later on, when, when the places of worship are dedicated, first the tabernacle, the portable worship center, and then the temple, the permanent worship center, down comes this cloud of God's glory and it fills those places to the point where the people who are near cannot even stand. They fall down. What is that? 
It's the glory of God. It's this physical manifestation of God's glory in a form that people can see. It expresses to them God's overwhelming beauty and power and brilliance. And what we're being told here is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. It's in Jesus that we see God's glory in an even more fuller, in an even more beautiful, and even more brilliant way than even in that cloud of glory. N.T. Wright, author, he puts it this way, speaking about what we're talking about right now. He says, what are we to do? What are we to do with this thought that the hurricane has become a human? What are we to do with this thought that the fire has become flesh? And he goes on to say, the only reasonable response is sheer, unadulterated worship of the true and living God and following him wherever he leads. If this is who Jesus is, if Jesus is more than just another good teacher, if he is more than just another religious guru, if Jesus is actually the radiance of God's glory, the fiery cloud become flesh, then you know what? You, you can't just like him. You can't just be fond of him. You can't put him on the same shelf with other thinkers and religious leaders throughout history. There is only one appropriate response, and that is to worship him and give him all of your life and nothing less. Number four, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. At this point, I don't know about you, but I feel like, I don't know, this is like, I don't know if I can take anymore. I feel like my mind and my heart is about to explode trying to contain all of this, who Jesus is and all of his greatness, but the writer just keeps going. He upholds the universe. Every molecule, every atom, every system, every star, every galaxy, the orbit of the planets, Jesus holds the universe together. He maintains it all. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart, that electric pulse that keeps your heart moving and beating, he maintains it. And yet not a single hair falls from your head without him knowing about it. He's known a lot about me over the last couple of years, if that's true. But every minute, every, even the minute details of your life, he cares about them. Can you imagine this God who monitors the orbits of the planets and holds molecules and systems together. He even cares about you. The Bible encourages you to cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. What that means is that because he upholds the universe by the might of his word, there's nothing that is beyond his ability. He can do beyond anything you can even ask or imagine. But here's the other thing it means. It means that he cares intimately about you and about the going on of your life. And so you can bring everything to him, the great and the small. There's nothing too big for him and there's nothing too small that he wouldn't care. He's that kind of God. Six, he made purification for our sins. Not only is Jesus full of power and wisdom, but he's also full of love. He is God's revelation of himself to us, but he is also our savior who took the judgment for our sin so that we could be cleansed and made pure. He took your sins upon himself in order to cleanse you and make you pure so that you could stand before him and you could have a relationship with him so that you could enter in. He was the only one who could do it. You could never do it for yourself and he did it for you out of love for you. You know, the message of the gospel is this. Your sin is so serious. Your sin is so serious that God himself had to die for you but he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. 
God himself had to die for you, but he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. And seventh, he, was, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what that means? When you're done with your work, you know what you do? You take a seat. And that's exactly what I was talking about. It's a position of power. It's a position of honor. But it's a position of finished work. Everything he came to do, he accomplished it fully. And now he's sat down. And finally, let's just conclude with this. Now that we know these things, what are we to do with them? What are you supposed to do now that you know these things? Why is the author telling us these things? He's just giving us some interesting information. No, there's implications for your life. You have to take this information. Now that you know it, you have a responsibility to do something with it. And he tells us what that is in the beginning of the next chapter. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, in other words, because of this, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape if we neglect it, if we miss it? What the writer's saying is this. If, if this is true, if this is who Jesus is, then you can't sit on the fence anymore. You can't be complacent about it. You can't be half-hearted about it. If this is true, and it is, then the only proper response is for you to go all in. The only proper response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is for, you, for you is sheer unadulterated worship and following him wherever he leads. There is none who compares to him. There is none who is on par with him. You can't put him on the same shelf, on the same category with other historical figures or religious gurus. He's in a category all by himself and only in him is there true life and salvation because only in him can you receive grace and forgiveness and redemption because of what he did for you by taking your place in death so that you could have life. Whatever you do, he's telling us here, make sure that you don't neglect this great salvation. Don't put it off. Don't miss it. Some of you, maybe you've been dragging your feet. You've been trying to stay on that fence. You've been afraid of, you know, really putting down your yes. Today, the message for you is this. Don't miss it. Don't neglect it. Don't put it off. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Rather, instead, look to Jesus See what he did for you and embrace it and cling to it with your whole heart and thank God for it. For all of us today, I'll just conclude with this. The one thing I want to leave you with as you go, I want to encourage you today to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. That's what I want to leave you with. Now maybe there's some of you who came today and you say, what? Like, I, I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more practical uh, this morning, you know? I'm struggling in my marriage I want you to tell me how to be a better husband. I want you to tell me how to be a better wife. I'm struggling with a situation at work. I'm struggling maybe with loneliness. I'm having a hard time financially. I'm uncertain what to do with my future, which path to take. I was kind of hoping that I could come here and you give me some practical advice about what to do about these situations in my life, how to be a better husband, what to do with this situation at work or my personal life. Well, let me give you some advice about that. You want to be a better husband? You want to deal with that situation at work? You want to know what to do with your future? Here's the most practical advice I can give you. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. That is the most supremely practical advice that I could possibly give you. Whatever you're going through today, this applies to you wherever you're at. Whether it's a good season of your life, whether it's a challenging season of your life, wherever you're at, this is the most practical advice I could possibly give you. Fix your eyes on the greatness of and the glory of who Jesus is. As the author says here, pay closer attention 
to what he has done for you and allow the implications of God's love and God's grace towards you. Let them permeate your heart and your mind and let them transform your perspective and affect every area of your life. Let's look to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to see here in your word the the picture, the glory of who you are. And Lord, as we conclude now in worship, Lord, may this truly be our response to that. Lord, may we truly see you as you are. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's discouraged, who says, you know what, I totally relate to those people. I'm discouraged. I feel like giving up. Lord, may they see you. May they fix their eyes upon you. Lord, for those of us who are, are having a good time in our lives, Lord, may we fix our eyes upon you wherever we're going through, whatever we're struggling with, whatever challenges we face, Lord, may we fix our eyes upon you and see in you the greatness of your glory. And may that truth, your love for us, your grace towards us, may it give us so much confidence, so much courage as we move forward in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.